Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Kentuckian Podcast. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Glad to have you with us. Uh, Here we are at part four of our Logic and Fallacies series. I originally planned, and I even put this on the Facebook page, to put out two episodes last week to make up for not getting an uh, episode out the week before. I decided not to for a couple reasons. I've got a lot going on. I've been really busy the last two or three weeks, and I want to maximize the exposure for each episode, and I fear that uh, not publishing on my regular schedule plus putting episodes really close to each other means that the the later one will get mostly missed, Uh, although I'll continue to look into that and consider some options there. So that plan's kind of changed. Although you all do help a lot with the exposure, um, but also when I post and, you know, the normal schedule, that affects those visibility things a lot as well. Facebook algorithms and all that sort of stuff. I've also got some pretty interesting ideas cooking. I've got a a new series that I'm milling about in my head that I'm pretty excited about. I just thought about it, I guess, yesterday, and I'm excited to dig into that a little more. But as we jump into this episode, we want to remember that logically sound arguments are so important, and understanding logical fallacies is so valuable in being able to be more logical ourselves and being more perceptive with the arguments and points of others. So as we jump in today, we will continue to go through the list of informal logical fallacies, picking up with the furtive fallacy first one we'll talk about today. This fallacy is when an outcome, and I'll say it again, furtive, furtive fallacy is when an outcome or result is caused by the bad practices of the decision makers, often with some sort of agenda to be pushed. This is a very common fallacy. Just so you know, furtive means done in stealth or secret, basically, to sum that up very briefly. This is common in the academic study of history, for example. History Historians, professional or otherwise, often make claims that are simply not supported by evidence or or misconstrue the facts of the situation. You see this often in biographies. Facts are ignored, stories are made up, unsupported or blown out of proportion, and so on, to portray the view of the, fi- the figure that the writer wants to, right? Not necessarily the one that is accurate or fair. Sometimes, you know, it's a, the person sees this person as a childhood hero and therefore They want to make sure when they write the biography that they come across as a hero, even if some things that they did would bring that into question or vice versa. They see someone as a a bad guy and they want to make sure people continue to view him as a bad guy. Very common in history, though, in general. This happens all the time in government. Of course, there's a lot of examples you go through. It might be politicians lying about something to get elected with no intention of fulfilling it, although sometimes you'll see them make hollow actions to give the illusion of their word meaning something. But really, you know, they, the outcome or result is is uh, not what they said it would be because they were just saying it to get reelected, that sort of thing. Often procurement officers for the military uh, – are very corrupt, and this is another example of the furtive fallacy, uh, I think, in general. Basically, the military uses procurement officers to decide what equipment it's going to buy, and it's it's kind of a, a decently well-known thing, at least in certain circles, that often procurement officers are likely to choose the company, the defense contractor that wines and dines them the best instead of what they're supposed to use 
to choose, you know, whatever the requirements the military gives them for the kind of equipment they're looking for. There's probably illegal kickbacks that jump around, all sorts of different stuff like that. But there's definitely a lot of corruption in the procurement officer uh, scene. And oftentimes this leads to subpar equipment or vastly overpaying for equipment or a combination of the two. The military is notorious for overpaying for stuff that, that you can buy used for not even close to that. And it's basically brand new. And, and uh, there's a lot of issues that happen with procurement. It, a lot of money is bouncing around and there's a lot of corruption with that. And it's kind of an example of the furtive fallacy, right? That result is caused by the bad practices of the procurement officer, often with some sort of agenda, right? They may be wanting to get the most out of it. They may be wanting a little kickback. They may be wanting to be, you know, be put up in some fancy hotel. And instead of their uh, outcomes being, well, we're choosing the best equipment based on the requirements of the military, it's I'm choosing the equipment that is from the company that gives me the best stuff, right? To put it simply. A lot of examples you could go to on this one, uh, including a lot of stuff with COVID and government, both federal government and, and local government issues and governors and all sorts of different problems there, health officials. But I'm going to hold off on those examples for now anyway. The next fallacy that I want to talk about is the gambler's fallacy. This fallacy is when you believe two independent events actually affect each other when they really don't, or if something happens, it's less likely to happen later when they're not actually connected. This one's pretty common too, although I believe in most cases it's pretty harmless. Uh, you do something like, for example, break a mirror or walk under a ladder, and a string of unfortunate, inconvenient, harmful, bad luck events, if you will, happen afterwards. You attribute those events to the first action, even though they're obviously not connected. Obviously, breaking a mirror doesn't necessarily have anything to do with bad luck you may have afterwards but as humans we tend to connect those things sometimes that would be an example of the gambler's fallacy or they're at least not connected in the way you believe them to be there's the whole you know my luck's got to change eventually right one example that they gave uh, i think is a very good example my sister's first three children have been girls the fourth one is sure to be a boy and of course people talk like that all the time as i mentioned before not necessarily all that harmful but it isn't it is a logical fallacy right it isn't logical to say that uh the the note they gave was i think it's roughly they believe it to be 50 50 chance whether you have a boy or a girl so it's a 50 50 chance that the the fourth ch child is a boy or a girl not well because there's been three children three girls it has to be a boy now for some reason i think that one's pretty straightforward though the next fallacy is the genetic fallacy the genetic fallacy is when the merit of an argument or something can be determined by where it originates from. Something can be determined by where it originates from. Now, as we jump into this, this is not to say that the origin of an argument or the origin of something cannot affect factors such as accuracy uh, or whatever is under discussion, but it doesn't necessarily determine the actual accuracy of an argument. And that's one thing that you may have seen before, and I, I've noticed there's several arguments that can be factors in the accuracy of something or whether or how likely it is to be uh, true or well-intentioned or whatever. But one thing you have to remember when we're thinking about logical arguments is oftentimes those things that can be factors 
those arguments that can be factors, those elements of the, the equation, if you will, that can be factors aren't enough on their own to determine the outcome of an argument, to determine the accuracy of a statement or what have you. And that's something we need to remember. Now, they give one example. My phys or one of the examples they gave, excuse me, my physician is overweight. I can't trust any of his health advice. Well, maybe you are a little less likely to take advice on weight from him. But just because he's overweight doesn't mean that any health advice he gives is wrong, right? To sum up their other example, uh, and again, this is like a paraphrase, basically. Someone believes in a particular religion because their parents taught them and their parents are good people. Their parents may very well be good people in the general way that we as humans define that. But that doesn't mean that the religion they believed in is true because the parents are good people or that sort of thing, right? Now, you might ask, and I think uh, it's important to take a moment to discuss this. Well, what about trustworthiness, right? You know, the, these these elements of a physician being overweight may affect their statements, their beliefs, their decisions. You know, I may know somebody is untrustworthy because they've lied to me before, right? You might ask that question like, well, just because I think that they might be lying to me, you know, how is that a, 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 a logical fallacy? And again, that is certainly true. I don't want to say that those things cannot be factors. A physician that obviously doesn't take care of his health, whether it's weight or not, just doesn't take care of his health, you would probably be less likely to take health advice from because apparently he doesn't believe what he says enough to follow it, right? Or he's more likely to want to, want to kind of defend himself because he's like, well, I'm, you know, I don't want people to think I'm unhealthy, so I'll say things that aren't necessarily true. If somebody, a friend or, or an acquaintance lies to you, you're going to be much less likely to believe them. However, the the key is likely. You're going to you're going to be much more suspicious. You're going to be less trusting. It doesn't mean that everything they say from that point on is a lie. It doesn't mean everything they say from that point on is wrong. But you recognize there's probably a higher chance that they are. So, you, But you still want to be sure to take the time to weigh the argument, to weigh the statement out logically, to look at the evidence, that sort of thing. Because even a chronic liar doesn't necessarily lie every time they open their mouth. And they may say something that's true, and if you discount it because they tend to lie, you may kind of set yourself up for failure. And that's what we're trying to get at with that. The next logical fallacy is called ignoratio elinci. I don't know if I said that quite right or not. Uh, it's also known as the irrelevant conclusion. As they put it, it reaches a relevant conclusion but misses the point. It may be a logical argument. It just isn't really applicable, not really related. One example they gave is the president's policies on health care may be popular, but he's secretly a Nazi and should probably be investigated. Well, the president's health care policy's popularity and the question of whether he is a Nazi or not are not really connected. So irrelevant conclusion might be logically sound, just they're not really two connected things, two connected arguments, two connected statements. You see this with gun control arguments. Somebody may say, kind of paraphrasing, this particular gun was used in this shooting, so we need to ban or restrict that gun. 
Well, the details of a person that went on a killing spree and what a law-abiding citizen owns or is allowed to own are unconnected logically. The argument may be logically sound, but the two parts aren't connected in addressing the question. One side, one part of that, that statement or question or argument is the motives and act related to the motives and actions of a criminal, and the other is restrictions that may or may not be placed on a law-abiding citizen. Now remember, this is from the logical side. Two unrelated parties are improperly connected, the criminal and the average citizen. To maybe put this into a, a better light, if you were to argue that X gun that was used in a shooting was available to a criminal, the guy that went and, and did the shooting, because it's a popular defense weapon, so there's a lot of them out there, therefore, if we ban it, even for the citizen, for the person that isn't that isn't the criminal, but may own them and make them, in, a, in essence, available because somebody could steal it because they're all over the place. And then you were to say it becomes much more difficult or impossible for a criminal to use that particular firearm. It would make for a much more logically sound argument. Now, that's not even saying that's necessarily true, but at least it's much more logical in that you're recognizing that you're actually logically connecting those two things. But notice how I had to go through two or three or four different steps to get there instead of just saying, well, this gun was used, so we need to ban it. Well, who are you banning it for, right? It, it's not logical. It's it's the uh, ignoratio elenji, right? It's an irrelevant conclusion. Those two things aren't connected in that argument. So hopefully that clears that up a little bit. The next one I want to talk about is incomplete comparison. Incomplete comparison is when two things are connected that aren't actually related. This is done to make something more appealing. This can also happen when conclusions are made with incomplete information. And just so you know, uh, it's a pretty straightforward definition, and the the fallacy is pretty straightforward. So that, that definition I gave is not quite a quote, but it's almost a quote. It's a very close paraphrase of what they had on the website. The example that they gave is... Carrots have much less sugar than a gallon of chocolate syrup. Well, it may be true that carrots have much less sugar than a gallon of chocolate syrup, but it ignores many factors, and it's unlikely that the comparison of carrots and chocolate syrup is very useful for any argument, right? Uh, perhaps another way to think about this, it's like the jokes that I and others tell sometimes. You may have heard them yourselves. Well, you're, you know, you're eating a dessert, and maybe it's an oatmeal cookie of some kind was like, well, this cookie's got oatmeal in it, so it's actually healthy, right? It's a health food, um, that kind of joke. Or, listen, you know, there's this peanut butter pie that that we make it at uh, in my family that's really, really good. And, you know, might joke about, well, this pie has peanut butter as one of the main ingredients. So really, it's a high-protein meal, that kind of thing, right? Those kind of silly jokes that really are incomplete comparisons, but that's the humor of it because the incomplete comparison is so obvious. Hopefully that illustrates that pretty well. I, I think I think it does. That one's pretty pretty easy to understand overall. I believe. Now it might be hard. It might be easy to miss them from time to time, but you need to be on watch for that one because I think it shows up more than we realize. All gun control, COVID, a lot of different stuff where uh, those comparisons are used. A lot of political issues, but I think a lot of issues in general, especially political issues and historical issues, though. The next logical fallacy, informal logical fallacy we'll talk about today is inflation of conflict. Now, inflation of conflict occurs when two 
uh, I'll say authorities, authority figures, whatever, scholars, scientists, etc., disagree, then, it, then that disagreement, the fact that the authorities don't always agree on whatever the, the situation is, delegitimizes the entire field or, or situation in question. So they gave an example that I'll use, and then I, I have some other things to talk about. My piano teacher says I should practice one hour each day, but my father says I should practice three hours a day. They don't know what they're talking about. They are talking about, so I shouldn't practice at all. That's an inflation of conflict. The fact that they don't agree doesn't mean you shouldn't practice at all. You're just going to have to work harder to figure out how much you should practice, right? I see this a lot in politics, and, and particularly I'm thinking of, I see it a lot when people are talking about politics and how they're involved in politics. I've heard arguments that basically boil down to, well, the left is extreme on this and the right is extreme on that, so I just don't get involved in politics or something similar. There's just so much conflict in politics, so much division, whatever. I avoid getting tangled up in it at all. Well, the fact that there's a lot of conflict is not a logical reason for why you should choose not to get involved. Now, you may choose not to get involved in the fact that there is so much conflict may be a factor, but it's not really a logical reason, right? The fact that there is conflict in politics doesn't delegitimize the importance of political issues. Now, you may choose it's not important for you for other reasons, but just to avoid conflict is not a logical, just because there's a conflict is not a logical reason. People use it to kind of uh, just ignore it. You see that in religion as well. Well, these uh, denominations or whatever don't agree, and they're always dis uh, disputing on on doctrinal issues, so I just don't go to church at all. I just don't even try. And that's not really a logical argument to make. And the last one I want to talk about today is kettle logic. Now, kettle logic is when inconsistent arguments are used to defend a position. Again, very close paraphrase on that definition there. It's a pretty straightforward definition. I'll use a customized form of their example for it. This one's pretty standard, pretty easy to understand, I think. So, my modified version of their example, someone accused of doing drugs in a public place might respond with an argument that they were not doing drugs in a public place since the restroom they were doing them in was in a park in a secluded location and the stall block, blocked them from public view. That might be an argument that uses kettle logic. I think we can understand that just because they may have been hidden from view doesn't mean that where they were doing the illegal activity wasn't a public space. Pretty straightforward, I believe. Now, this episode, uh, this is that was the last one we were going to talk about this episode. It's a bit shorter for a couple reasons. Main reason, I've got several things going on this weekend, and I needed to finish it up quickly. I had something that came up actually just about a week ago and sort of, uh, and well, actually, I guess a couple of things, and, and that sort of crimped my time some. But also, as I was thinking about it, I may try and keep these episodes on logic and fallacies a little bit shorter anyway. I've, I've kept them a little bit longer, I think, on the, on the average. But I'm, I was just thinking I'm concerned, or before I recorded, thinking I'm, I'm concerned that what might happen is we cover so much, cover so many different logical fallacies in one episode that they don't stick very well. Almost like you're overwhelming my overwhelming y'all with like a bunch of different uh, concepts, right? Even so, some of them are pretty short and everything, but it can still be a lot because a lot of them are, are pretty unique compared to the others. 
So I may try and do that anyway. I think it would probably be helpful. I mean, even in this episode, I've already, we've already covered seven different fallacies, and I've gone into more detail on some of them than I than I maybe normally would. So I'll think about that, probably try and keep these a little bit shorter anyway. I hope this episode has been uh, interesting and helpful as always. I know that I've gained a lot from this series, and I've gotten feedback too that at least one or two people, and I think more than that, are uh, are gaining from it. Remember, please, as, as we start to conclude, that you all make such a massive difference in helping me spread the word. Your all's interaction with the Facebook pages and sharing it with others and liking and commenting on the links I post on the Facebook page and, and all that helps so much with visibility, helps so much in me getting it out there. And it might take just a few seconds, but it, it really makes a massive difference. Something, some little thing that you can do to really help me out and, I, and help me help others out. The website that I used for this episode will be linked in the description below. As always, please reach out to me with, with any kind of feedback that you have. My Facebook and Instagram pages are linked below as well. You can reach out to me there quite easily. If you'd like to help me in a more personal way, my Patreon is linked below as well. And I, want, I do want to thank my patron as well. Uh, such an important thing to help me out with with keeping up with the Kentuckian and, and hopefully expanding it as well. As we close, please take, if, if you would, just just as, a, as a, to help me out, just take a, a moment when this episode ends, something specific that I, I'm asking you to do <laughs> as a personal favor, I guess, is uh, hop on my Facebook page and, and just like the link to this episode. It makes a big difference if you just hop on there real quick, do that, and really helps visibility and everything. It makes a big difference. If you would do that, I would greatly appreciate it. And then your all support, as always, means a lot to me and really makes a big difference. I don't want you all to forget that. So thank you. And remember, friends, as long as you and I are doing the right thing, we will make a real difference out there. The Kentuckian. Trying to make a difference one person at a time.